Hello, and welcome to No Direction, your number one source for Pathfinder news, reviews, and interviews. I'm Esther, and I'm usually here with my co-host, Navar, but unfortunately, he is under the weather this evening, so I am flying solo. And tonight, we are going to get back into Rage of Elements with someone who I am so excited to have on the show. We are welcoming Jessica Redekop, who is a freelance game designer, has many, many titles in addition to Rage of Elements with Pathfinder and Starfinder, is the co-host of No Direction Network show Legend Lore, and is cast member of the No Direction actual play Tavern Rats. Jess, welcome! Hello, it's wonderful to be here. It is so great to have you. Navar and I have been looking forward to this for a really long time now, and I'm bummed that he can't be with us tonight. But in honor of our tradition, I will just kick us off by asking the question, what is your Pathfinder origin story? I started playing Pathfinder 1 in like the playtest, like way back in like 2007, 2008. So I have been playing Pathfinder from the beginning. We switched, I think we were playing an Eberron campaign at the time. And so the when the Pathfinder playtest released during this campaign, we switched over mid-campaign from 3.5 to the Pathfinder playtest. That is amazing. I think that's like the... The earliest origin story anybody's had? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you've been here for a long time. I'm curious, what was the switch from 1E to 2E like? Like, not that we can't play 1E anymore, but like, right. what was that, the new system announcement like for you? Yeah. So Pathfinder 1 was announced at a time when I had just started freelancing. And so my like my Pathfinder one publication credits are like for Paizo is, is one single book, one single player companion that I wrote for. And then after that, it was just Starfinder and Pathfinder two. And so I was very at that point, very, very familiar with Pathfinder one. I knew it inside and out and backwards. And I had been like doing my own homebrew stuff for years and years and years the way that I think anyone, when you've been playing in a particular system for like, once you get to five, seven, 10 years is you just make your own stuff. Right. And so absolutely, I was, I was not completely sold at first on Pathfinder two. And I actually never really looked at the play test because I just wasn't sure I was so accustomed to Pathfinder one which in turn, I was so accustomed to like D&D 3.5 and D&D 3rd edition because that was continuing on that legacy. And so I was so familiar with working within that framework and making that framework do what I wanted it to do for me that I wasn't totally sure if I even wanted to do writing for Pathfinder 2 or if I wanted to continue writing for like third-party companies that were going to continue supporting Pathfinder 1. And so the first couple assignments that I got for Pathfinder 2, which were assigned prior to the actual system releasing, were lore-focused. And that, okay, fine. There's no engagement with the rules at all. I'll just write this lore section. It doesn't really matter what system this is for. There's nothing different. And then... I had I started getting assignments that were more rules focused and one of my earliest assignments was the Pathfinder 2 Bestiary 2 which again at this point the system hasn't released yet so being able to work on Bestiary 2 I had the opportunity to have an earlier look before the system released at the way that monsters worked in the final system and the process of designing creatures for Pathfinder 2 sold me on the system. I had not seen the final rule book. I had not played even a single session, but in designing monsters and like, I could, I could just like feel inside of my brain, the way that designing creature actions and deciding how many actions they each took and like just how much nicer I knew this was going to feel to run those creatures 
as opposed to writing for Pathfinder 1, there is so much just hijinks that you would have to do creating a creature for like, okay, I want it to do this standard action on its turn, but I also want it to be able to do something else on that same turn. And what kind of actions do I need to make all of these things so they fit together in the way that I want? So much more complicated to do that for Pathfinder 1 compared to Pathfinder 2. And so just the just seeing the way that creatures worked in theory was enough to sell me on it. I was in love with it already. I love that. I love that. I too was really skeptical when I first heard Wind of the New System. And like, I didn't even look at the playtest. I was like, I've poured in so much effort into learning Pathfinder 1. I'm not going to do this. And then immediately on designing a character, I was like, oh, I love this system. This is a really well-designed, fun system to play in. And I, I kind of love that, like getting into the meat of the design has sold so many people on yeah. Pathfinder 2. I think that just speaks really highly of the design and of the system. And it's a really common thread that I've heard in these discussions we've been able to have. So that is very, very cool. I'm curious, before we get into like Rage of Elements proper, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your freelance journey, how you got a little bit more about like how you got into freelancing, what that looks yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah, so the like joke answer that I like to give is that I just kind of like hit networking critical mass and it became impossible for me to not accept work doing freelance game design. But to be more specific, I started going to PaizoCon is basically how this all happened. I am a really big fan of the Planescape setting for Dungeons and Dragons. And there are other people who are also like super fans of Planescape and it's a, a niche setting in the way that anyone who sees it and recognizes it immediately knows like, oh, whoever else it is that is into Planescape is like, they would not be invoking Planescape unless they were really into Planescape, right? And so when I started going to PaizoCon, I went there running games that I had written, like single session adventures that were set in Planescape. They used the Pathfinder 1 rules, but then the Planescape setting. And every year I would come, I would bring a new adventure. And sometimes I would run like the previous year's adventure too. Or eventually I just had so many of them because I had been doing this for so many years that I had to start curating like, okay, this is the one that I won't run this year. But after doing that for several years, I started developing a reputation for being the person showing up at PaizoCon running Planescape. And like everybody else who is into Planescape is like all those Planescape games. And one of the people who had noticed my games, but had never been able to get into one of them, even though he desperately wanted to play in one of them, was Kristen Sowards. And Kristen Sowards was the publisher who ended up putting together the third party uh, like setting source book, uh, City of Seven Seraphs. Mm. And based solely on the fact that I was enough of a weirdo to show up to PaizoCon running Planescape games every year. And also Kristen's reconnaissance that he had done listening in at the doorways to see what my games were like. Uh, He contacted me and asked me, so do you do freelance game design? And I said, no. (laughs) And he says, well, do you want to do freelance game design? And he was insistent enough that he successfully hired me to write on his book, even though when he asked me if I did freelance writing, I said no. (laughs) He was undeterred. He did not give up. He was going to hire me. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) That's a fantastic story. I love that it speaks to the value in owning one's weirdness and one's interest and passions like just fully going for it and being like this is what I love this is the setting I love this is what I want to run and I'm gonna do that and I feel like over time obviously in in this uh, situation that got noticed but Mm -hmm. I think about like opportunities in my own life where I've just committed to a thing and people find me through that thing and are like hey you want to do this and I'm like, oh, you you want me to do this? 
Can yeah. I say yes to this? I guess I can say yes. And then it yeah. becomes a whole new avenue. I actually feel like that is a great segue into talking about The Plains and this book and how it came into being. I want to shout out Legend Lore because I think you've talked about this book already on our sister show. And I don't want to like double dip too much, but I'd love to just get into, first of all, like the design process. What's it like to get the call to work on this book and then yeah. be in that process. Yeah. So the um, the process for getting the call for the book happened a little bit earlier than it usually would because they were offering me the cover credit. And in order to have uh, some of the authors on the cover, everyone who's on the cover has to combined write at least half the book, which means that... Um, if you add up my word count for Rage of Elements, Sen, HHS, and Logan Bonner's word count, we combined wrote uh, more than half of the words in Rage of Elements. I think we each have about one-sixth of the book. Wow. Which is, it, it is uh, a significant amount of work to write that much of one book. And so initially, it was Mark Seifter who reached out to me and said that there was an opportunity for me to have a cover credit on a book. Uh, He could not say what the book was, but it was something that was within my wheelhouse. And these are the particular dates that you would be writing during. And can you be available during those dates? Because previously, Mark had tried to hire me to write um, the genie Sorcerer Bloodline for Advanced Player's Mm. Guide. And I had not been able to take on the 2,000 words that that required. I only ended up writing like, I think five or 600 words for Advanced Player's Guide because that was like the maximum amount that I could take on. And so after having the prior experience of Jess might turn down work, uh, Mark was like, okay, I'm going to ask her like real early. Like, can you block off this time? Can you reserve it so that you can be available for this very large assignment? And so... I said, uh, like, tentatively, yes, and I blocked it off in my calendar as Ultimate Dandy. Because, I mean, obviously, it's not Ultimate Dandy, right? But that was, like, I don't know what this book is. I could guess and speculate, but I don't want to. I don't want to try to guess what this book is. I'm just going to put it in my calendar as Ultimate Dandy, which I know that it's not, and then Mm -hmm. I'm not going to think about it anymore. It's just going to, like, any any impulse to speculate, like, could this be a planar book? It's just not in my mind. And then Mark left Paiso and there was a little bit of time where I was like, oh, Mark asked me if I wanted to do a cover credit on this book and now he's not there anymore. What does this mean? But I was uh, reassured that during Mark's exit from the company, he obtained several promises from several other people that uh, he had offered me this and they would honor that and I would still be offered the the book. And so I was contacted uh, around the time that the outline was being put together so that I could be asked, like, out of everything on the outline, what are your preferences for which sections would you most like to write? And so Sen, HHS, and I both knew that we had the outline. And so, like, we got in contact, like, okay, what are you saying that you want so that I won't ask for those things so that we each maximize our chances of getting the things that we want? And so we went through and divided up different parts of the book uh, for like, these are what you will ask for. These are what I will ask for. And then we asked for our respective sections. And the final assignment that I got, some of it was what I had asked for. Others were just sections that they were what I had ended up having to get. Because it's it's so many words, it's Mm -hmm. impossible to... Even if I were to go through and curate like these, this is the one sixth of the book that is my dream one sixth. Like it, you can't really assign a book that way. There are other sections that just like for practical reasons, it has to be divided up in a certain way, right? Right, right. And I have a list of uh, that you provided in our Discord a while back of what you did work on. And I wanted to ask, I I know if Navarre were here, he would want to talk about the narrator voice. And so I wanted to take a moment to to ask about that, like your inspirations for Aziza 
Yeah, for Aziza's voice. Uh, firstly, I wrote a lot of the introduction section, but I didn't write the full thing. And then the narrator for the introduction is the same as for the churn section. Mm. And so whoever it was that was the narrator for those sections had to be a voice that would be accessible to multiple people to write for, or something that is easy to transform other text into. And so the primary inspiration point that I had for this, and I don't know if I quite hit it or if it ended up maybe like aiming for one place, but going somewhere else that is like still very cool, but maybe not exactly where I was aiming for was I wanted Aziza to be kind of like a Jane Austen character. Mm, I love that. That is okay. I'm really into this. Say more. Yeah. So the, the inspiration point that I had going for it was just like, the way that like the heroine of a Jane Austen novel would talk about their life or narrate about the world around them and the kinds of observational statements that they might make. And so Aziza ended up being someone who was uh, a little bit quippy, uh, a little bit like prone to just kind of throwing facts out or having kind of a conversational tone with the reader. Oh, wow. I love that. And now that you say it, my brain is drawing parallels with all the Austin works mm -hmm. I'm familiar with. And I'm like, oh, amazing. That totally yeah. shows up. How delightful. I This is why I love doing these interviews, like getting <laughs> insights like that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be thrilled about this for a long time. Um, <laughs> so that's really cool. And it makes me want to ask about the voice that I loved most in this whole book, which is our guide through the plane of air. Yes. Is it Shinaria? Yeah. I don't know if it's Shinaria or Shinaria, like with Shin an emphasis okay. on the air part, but Shinaria is a character that appeared or at least was referenced already in Pathfinder 1, typically mm -hmm. only in information about Hoshura, the elemental lord of air. Uh, Shinaria is referenced as someone who used to be like a close confidant and maybe assassin who worked for Hashura, but then due to ambiguous reasons never stated, they had some kind of falling out and maybe they are enemies now. And mm. I thought that it would be really interesting for this existing character who's never been given a lot of depth to be the narrator through the plane of air because they have such a personal connection to someone who is basically a god on that plane. I loved it just from the first moment of reading that little introduction and then going mm -hmm. and reading through the entire like air lore and and what this character had to say. Mm -hmm. I found her tone so interesting. Yeah. Like both very accommodating, but also very like cold at times, very mercurial. Yeah. It was it was a delight. I was like, I believe that I am reading an air elemental telling me this. Yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of my inspiration for Hoshura's tone, or not Hoshura, for uh, Shinaria's tone ended up coming when I, while I was writing, because I did the, the lore sections for air, earth, and fire. And fire, I had kind of the easiest time with, but after I did fire, I was a little bit like, but I don't really know what these things should look like or what the parameters are. So I asked Logan if he could send me some of the other introductions that other people had written. And he sent me Andrew White's draft for the lore for the plane of metal. And I love that section. It is so good. The plane of metal, like the first little bit, the introduction bit where the narrator is like, oh, what's that? You have a compass? That's so cute. But no, put that away. This is not at all the same thing. I read that. And after reading that, I was like, oh, this is the inspiration that I needed for like the kind of tone that my air narrator can possibly take with the reader. Mm, mm. There's this section where I believe it's the storm where she now or they now live. And it's like this, you dare ask me to reveal the secrets of my home. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. do that. And I just loved getting to that section and like the the quick change in tone of like, ask yeah. me a different question. Kind of yeah. almost like before you're sorry about it. That was just beautiful and so well done. And I really want to know what the deal is with that storm and this whole like fractured relationship between Hishura and Shinaria. Yeah, I think that would be a 
very exciting opportunity for stories that could be told. It's a a campaign seed for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was like something that I'm like, as a GM, ooh, if I could work that in, I would love that. That's what I live for. And I'm really glad you brought up The Plane of Fire as well, Mm -hmm. because that was another narrator that really stood out to me. Dottie has this just beautiful, exuberant personality that, again, made such sense for like a fire vibe. Yeah. Just bright and... I, I was noticing I loved the use of exclamation points. And that's a yes. really specific thing. But I was wondering if it was intentional. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Arundhati is kind of a riff on a character that I have previously played who was named Arundhati Zoy and went by Dati. And obviously there are differences in the way that she ended up being translated into uh, being a tour guide on the plane of fire, which was not the way that she was when I played her as a character. So there are differences, but the, it was really the speech patterns that I had wanted to evoke. And because I had played her over text, I already had kind of an idea of the way that I would want to write this character in text. And it is a little bit actually based on like early chat bots, like uh, chatterbot, which Ooh. is why I don't know if this really comes through in like a a one-way conversation with her because you're not actually speaking back and forth with her when she's a narrator. But one of her like foundational speech quirks that she has is this tendency to repeat questions back to people. So like if you were to ask, uh, can you tell me about how I would travel from one place to another place, she would go, oh, how interesting. You want to know how you would travel between these two locations, location A and location B, right? And so this this sentence structure where she often says like, oh, how interesting is, is a core part of what I find so delightful about writing her. Yeah, it really is. And it's a delight to read her. Mm -hmm. Um, I kept being like, I wonder what she's going to tell me next. Like, where is she going to take me next? And how is she going to convey the information? It was such a strong character voice. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to like, shout you out and ask about it on the show because it really shone through. And I guess I want to back up for a second and just ask about your inspirations generally for like the lore of each of these planes and how you thought about like constructing the planes that you wrote. Yeah. So a lot of the information that I included was information that was pulled forward out of Pathfinder 1. Mm -hmm. But a part of what I think is so special about Rage of Elements is how much the focus is on making everything that is included in the book something that is usable in a game. So this is the elemental planes presented in a way where you can go there, you can adventure there. Time is spent on what kind of preparations would a player character group want to make in order to survive on this plane? How can you make that accessible to them? How can you make sure that they can survive in this place? Because like the plane of fire is very dangerous. There, there's one point where Aaron Dachi remarks about like, even if you weren't going to be burned alive, like, sure, there's air to breathe, but as soon as you inhale it, it's going to burn your lungs. So, you know, so much for that. They're so intensely dangerous and inhospitable places, most of them, that care has to be taken to make sure that you present them in a way that actually makes them seem enticing to explore and accessible to explore and places that you could imagine your character actually going Absolutely. And I think what is so special about this book is the way that you all did really achieve that. Reading through it, I was like, the planes seem so accessible. Mm -hmm. Like, for me as a player, but also for me as a GM, thinking about how I would present this information to people to, like, guide them into a planar travel. And Mm -hmm. I loved that the lore sections were also so accessible there aren't places where anything gets you too bogged down into details. Like there's just the right amount of detail and story seed to plant something really interesting and then leave it in the hands of a GM to create and lead their players into something special. And that's really the case for this whole book, which I think is 
beautiful, remarkable, just so well done. Yeah, I'm really pleased and delighted and honored that I was able to contribute to this book, especially in such a large capacity that as what I was able to do, just because elemental content, like historically in like Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeons and Dragons, like inspired fantasy role-playing media often doesn't get to be explored in interesting and nuanced and captivating ways. Often, like when you have planar content, it will be so focused on the outer planes and exploring like, oh, Limbo or the Maelstrom is such an exciting place to adventure around. And here are all of the cool locations and here are all of the cool uh, proteans that you can meet there. Or here are the Gonzi and you can be descended from a protean character. And these things are all so exciting and exploring around like the outer planes is so exciting and interesting. And then you'll get to the elemental content and it's like, oh, and the plane of fire is fire. I don't know, there's fire there. And the elementals are fire. Some of them are small and some of them are large. And I don't know, right? Yeah. Whereas Rage of Elements takes so much time and care and love to put into these places to really present them as places that are worth exploring and places that are worth spending your time on and creatures that are worth including in your game because they are all interesting and unique in their own ways. They're not just like, oh, and this is a fire elemental. Yeah. One of the things that I love about this system that has come up frequently in our discussions with folks is the care put into the peoples of any place that is written about. And thinking about like, what is the perspective of somebody who inhabits this? What is the perspective of their cultures? Um, What are the perspectives of their cultures? And I think that really, really shows in the finished product, the attention to detail in the world building in the characterization makes it really special. And I have been a fan of the planes for a while, so coming into this book, I was like, yeah, I'm excited about this. And I I have a little bit of a difficult time understanding how people don't get excited about the planes. Yeah. But I'm like, if I were a person who were were not, Mm -hmm. I think this would interest me because it's just so full of care. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's another reason why having the narrators was such a strong choice on the part of uh, the the people at Paizo who put together the outline and decided how they wanted the book to be written, because none of these planes are described from an outside perspective. All of them are described to you from someone who lives there. And so that forces whoever is writing the section to make sure that they are writing this from the perspective of someone who lives there and not from the perspective of an outsider in a way that would be othering of the plane, even though it is like, you know, a fantasy fire elemental plane full of fire elementals, right? Like that's, that's pretty otherworldly for us, but it's presented from a perspective where that's home. I love that because even as there's the fantasy element it, it ties it to this sense of home and mm-hmm. makes it so relatable and so personal. And for me, I find a lot of meaning in like figuring out where the personal lies in this realm of imagination. And so to see it done so well is just really special. Where I wanted to go is with the re-emergence of the planes of metal and wood, how did the writing team like go about weaving in that lore? What were some of the conversations that happened maybe behind the scenes as you all were planning and then writing and bringing it all into being? Yeah, a lot of those I think probably happened before I came onto the book. I know that San HHS, in addition to being a cover author, also was consulted about how the planes of metal and wood could be integrated in because culturally Sen HHS is uh, a writer from Taiwan. And so the uh, the kind of traditional Chinese medicine five elemental system is something that she is very familiar with. Like, I don't know if she would use the word expert to describe herself, but from my perspective, she's certainly an expert on it. 
And so I think a lot of those conversations probably happened between Sen and the developers for the book before I was brought on. But I know there was some discussion while we were writing, particularly because I was writing the air section of how to incorporate the idea that air is not an element within that framework, right? Mm. So like, if you're looking at the four elements that maybe the inner sea uses your earth, air, fire, water, air is an element, but then looking at the, um, the five elemental cycle, air is absent. And what does that actually mean for air? Is it an element or isn't it? Does it have an elemental plane or is this in fact just an extension of the sky? Like what does that actually mean? How can we weave this into the story and how can that be made uh, a part of the storytelling instead of something that people are just going to say like, oh, this is a CinemaSins plot hole, right? (laughs) Yeah. If I recall correctly, you bring that up very directly Mm -hmm. in the section, which I loved. And then it's kind of left like, ask your questions. That's very like, I'm happy to have some mystery about this. Air is mercurial and changing and best to keep you guessing kind of a thing. A part of that is, in my opinion, if I were to characterize the element of air, it would be something that is mysterious and difficult to pin down and is kind of just everywhere, nowhere, and you it's invisible, so you don't really know what it's up to. And so that element of mystery is something that I think suits the characterization of the element of air. But also, air does kind of have a place in the five elemental cycle if you want to think of air as being the thing that is in between the other five elements, the thing that is ferrying energy from one place to another. Like you could consider air to be that thing between the other things. That thing that inhabits the liminal space that mm-hmm. like makes it up. I yeah. I absolutely love that. And I remember that passage and the words, very similar words you used to describe it there, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the thing between the other things. And I think that's really beautiful. I also think it's really powerful in perhaps playing a a kineticist who's especially attuned to air. Yeah. I would have a lot of fun digging into that kind of lore, maybe even with like churn elements. But Mm -hmm. this is just me like spinning off again as I as I will do in this podcast sometimes. Am I correct that you also wrote Earth lore? Yes. So you have these like two very opposed to our way of thinking elements, yeah, earth yeah. and air. How did it feel going from one to the other? What was that process like? Yeah, I definitely wrote fire first and then air and earth kind of happened concurrently to each other. And I do kind of joke like it's, it's really just a meme, but I do kind of joke that like air is my favorite and earth sucks. Um, <laughs> but... I really enjoyed the opportunity to inhabit the perspective of Earth. There is a section in the Ancestry Guide. Uh, I did the the genie can for the Ancestry Guide, and there is a section about the Oread that talks about Oreads being like multifaceted and having many layers to them. And so, like, every time you think that you know an Oread and you, like, know their innermost self, they reveal to you that they have, like, another layer. And it's just, like, infinite, like, depth to their character. And, like, they're difficult to fully know because they will just continually reveal new things about themselves and new sides to their personality. Which, to me, I think is a really intriguing way to conceive of Earth because often it kind of gets pigeonholed into this like, oh, I don't know, they're steady and consistent. And so they just like, they they are the way that they are and face value, that's what they have to them. And that's that's them. And they'll, they'll be that way forever because they're so consistent. But the idea of conceiving of Earth as something that has like an infinite amount of depth and that you can always be searching for deeper and deeper and deeper meanings is kind of what ended up going into the characterization of the uh, the Earth narrator, who is someone who has spent like centuries or millennia, eons, like contemplating on the nature of Earth and how Earth changes and how Earth becomes only more earth the more it is acted upon and the more that it changes 
I absolutely love that. I think I also tend to categorize earth as the element I least relate to a lot of the time Mm -hmm. because of that sort of classical understanding of, well, it's just unyielding, really strong, very reliable. And I'm like, all those things are great. And I get a little bored easily after a while with that. And so this idea of layers and uncovering layers and really being with them of even buried things and ossified Mm -hmm. things and how that's an integral part of the earth, even if it's one that is a bit opposed to the things we might think of as more generative. All of that was so beautiful and so richly, like very textured and layered in and of itself. And I thought you did a great job of making earth appeal to me. Like beforehand, I don't think I would have been like, you know, I want my players to go to the plane of earth. And after reading it, I was like, yeah, we can do that. We could go there. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. I think you you. knocked that one out of the park. Thank you. Yeah, that Um, one definitely took like a little bit of extra thinking, and a little bit of extra care for exactly the reason that you were saying, like earth on the surface just seems like it's the boring one. And so a little bit, a little bit of extra thought and care to make sure that it's, uh, you know, it can stand up with the rest. I'm curious, are there particular places on each plane that you got to focus on that you're very fond of that you would want listeners to know about and look up? Ooh, I think probably the spheres on the plane of air are a really good one. And I knew right away, like very early on into doing research into what had been established about the planes in Pathfinder 1, that something had to be going on with those spheres. Mm. Because all throughout Pathfinder 1, they were kind of just like, oh, there's mysterious spheres, and maybe they're linked to prophecy, but it's all very mysterious. And they were left just kind of like door completely open for GM, do whatever you want to do with them. But it seemed to me immediately obvious that they should be somehow connected with the planes of earth and metal or to the way that the uh, good elemental lords had been sealed. Like one of these plot lines, like these spheres have to be like right in there. And so some of them are still sealed too. So there's definitely like the door is still there for GMs to use the spheres in whatever way they want. Or if they've already appeared in someone's game in some other capacity, uh, there's plenty of spheres to go around. They're all over the place. Plain air is lousy with them. So, you know, like got, got all those spheres. But yeah, I love them. Especially it mentions that a lot of settlements are built on the insides of the spheres, but that the air genies are superstitious of them and don't like to have anything to do with them. So interesting. Yeah, I I remember reading that section and reading about like the emergence of how do you pronounce the genie kin oh. of wood? Oh, uh I would say Kizatar. Kizatar. Okay. Is it Kizatar or um the Ardande? Uh, Ardande. 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 Yeah. I remember one of those like emerged from one of the spheres, which I thought was so interesting. And then I loved that other spheres still exist and it's maybe Mm -hmm. unclear what's inside them. And I think it's really cool to speculate on like, perhaps they didn't all have the same use. Like, where did these things come from? And and what use did they have? And what if they were different? And I loved how the door still felt so open for folks to interpret and run with it. Yeah, like those spheres were created by someone or something. Mm-hmm. And whomever it is that created them probably created them all around the same time or within like the same epoch of time, right? And that epoch of time had to have been before the planes of wood and metal were sealed away. And the spheres are made of metal and they were used, some of them, to like put some of the wood genies into stasis. And so who would be motivated to do that? Who would have access to being able to create these massive metal structures on the plane of air? Why would someone do that? What purpose did these serve? And what else 
would someone who is motivated to do that, what else would they also be motivated to do? Like mm. these, these are just very rich questions. Very rich questions indeed. I want to turn very briefly back to the reemergence of the planes of metal and wood and yeah. just kind of ask your general, your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. I think it's very cool. I was a little bit hesitant about it at first, just because it's not elementalism in the way that I traditionally conceive of it. Because when I think about the elements, I usually think about like the Greek elements and the platonic solids and all of that, like the, the Greek connections that elements have. That's usually the way that I think about elements in my mind. And so it was a little bit difficult for me at first, especially to make sure in writing the plane of earth, in making sure that I was giving earth a distinct identity that does not include wood and does not include metal. That's a challenge. And I thought about that as I was reading, how mm -hmm. it was really masterfully woven in there. Like the fact that they have connections as, as all of the planes can seep into one another, but mm -hmm. that it was really distinct and it didn't yeah. feel like there were these hugely overlapping portfolios. I thought you did a really good job with that. Thank you. Yeah, I I am a fan of the emergence, the re-emergence of the two planes. Yeah. I think it opens up like, again, such rich questions and world building and opportunities for adventure as they sort of reorient themselves as things begin to blossom again as these long long diminished elemental lords mm -hmm. like come back into their power within the planar system such good stuff there yeah yeah i i have come around on them like i said i was hesitant at first but i've come around on them to the extent that i think that the next time that i am doing anything with planescape I am probably going to change the inner planes so that wood and metal are two of like the quasi-elemental or the para-elemental planes. Amazing. Oh, that's awesome. I'm curious because you, I believe you wrote the Ardande Heritage. Is that, yes. is that right? How did you start to think about that and conceptualize them as a people? Yeah, so conceptualizing them as a people definitely very influenced by the fact that the plane of wood had been sealed away for so long. And so the way that they are presented in the book definitely focuses on what it would be like to be an Ardande on Golarian. And so it spends quite a bit of time on like, how would you even be an Ardande? Did you have like a bloodline that was suppressed and now like your planar heritage has awoken now that the plane that you are connected to has been returned to the multiverse? Or are you someone whose Ardande heritage was preserved throughout the years and how did that come to be? And so I, I think that is the reason why... When I was writing for Rage of Elements, this was before Wizards of the Coast tried to deauthorize the OGL. So all of this was written before the remaster had been announced and then the remaster was announced and then all of the work to change the book for the remaster was done internally by Paizo. And so I really like the um, the edicts that were chosen for the Ardande, which were done like internally, not by me, but they'd gone through what I had written about the Ardande and chosen like popular anathema, betray my family. Mm. And I think that that as an anathema for the Ardande is so interesting just because of like, what does it even mean? Like, what does your family mean to you as an Ardande, as someone whose connection to an element was maybe suppressed for a long time and is now returned and you are discovering things about your family and about your heritage that your family had lost for generations? Or are you someone whose family like was clinging to this heritage while the world itself, the multiverse, like the, the laws of reality were trying to take this heritage away from you. And like, what a rich character moment to have in your family lineage. I'm clinging to something that mm -hmm. literally like the fabric of reality is trying to tear away from me. 
is trying to erase and yeah. blot out over the history of, of time. That is a really, really powerful moment. There was something I wanted to ask you about in the Ardande Genikin and flipping to it will help me remember exactly what it was. We tend to like to ask folks like how you, some of your design thoughts on like ancestry feats and how you mm. conceptualize as a writer, as a designer, the kinds of bonuses or like just flavor that go into ancestry feats. What were some of the flavor thoughts that were in your mind as you were writing all of these? The most important thing that I needed to get right about the Ardande ancestry feats was making sure that the Ardande was distinct from all of the other plant theme character options. So making sure that the Ardande wasn't like, make, making sure that it wasn't redundant with the Leshy mm. or the Gorin or the Konrasu. Like there are so many other plant characters on top of just making sure that wood stood on its own compared to earth, right? And so I, in my research for writing the Ardande, I had like a Word document where I had every Goran feet, every Leshy feet, every Konrasu feet, and I organized them all based on what is this feet doing for you? What is the flavor of this feet? And then like weaving through in between those, making sure that I wasn't overlapping too strongly in any place that these other options already were covering. That makes so much sense. I remember as I read through this heritage that I had that question in my mind, like, how is this going to be different from the three you named? Yeah. And I was so pleasantly surprised that it did feel really different. And reading yeah. through these feats, I was like, this is really distinct. And I immediately, whenever I read through any ancestry, I automatically start to think about how I would play that ancestry. I have a list of characters that's like 90 long at this point, and Reading through this one, I instantly connected with the Molder Soul. I was like, yes. I want to play a Molder Soul Ardande. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, just be a gross little boy. Yeah, just be a gross yeah. little boy, decaying things, yeah. rotting things. But thinking about how much life there is, you mm -hmm. know, un under decaying wood, uh, what mm -hmm. it houses, what can grow from it. And I was so in love. I was like, I want to play a little goth, a little goth tree person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that is probably my favorite of the lineages. I was instantly drawn there. And the rest are fantastic, too. Like, I'm looking right below it, Spring Soul, which is just gorgeously illustrated, I feel like, in, in the art on the following page yeah, of this yeah. wood person with lush hair and, like, flowers springing out of their beard. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So you did you did a really incredible job differentiating this and mm -hmm. it absolutely shows i am conscious of our time so i wanted to ask you is there anything we haven't covered yet that you want to talk about Ooh, let me think is there anything uh well i mean we could talk about chunker mm, yeah yeah let's do it so chunker is one of the fire elementals and it is on page 127. It is the Broach Maw. This was written by Ruvade Verk. And Ruvade made the um, interesting choice of DMing me while we were writing Rage of Elements and asking me for help to name this creature. Amazing. <laughs> and so, because the, the way that creatures are named, they have to be in alphabetical order. And they have to be on, like the spreads where there are two pages. So you can't be cutting them up with the other sections of the book, right? And the section that is just like elemental comma fire has to go in like a, a certain spot because that's E. And so there were some of these things. What was it? I was doing the soot soldiers. I was doing the, um, the fire troop. And so- yes. Most of the other elemental creatures in the fire elemental section had names, but the the troop did not yet have a name and Ruvade's elemental did not have a name. And so one of ours had to go before E and the other one had to go after E. And so Ruvade messages me like, have you named your creature yet? 
what did you name your troop? And I'm like, oh, I have not looked at that troop yet. This this has not begun yet for me. So whatever it is that you name yours, I will work around. Like, don't even worry about it. And so we're talking about what we can name his creature. And he's telling me it's like an oven elemental. It like shoves you in its mouth. It cooks things in there. And we're brainstorming potential names. And then eventually... Uh, I was I was given permission to post like a screenshot of our Discord conversation on Twitter. So like that's out there. But eventually I'm just like, Ruvade, I had the most cursed thought. I don't think you should name it this, but this will not leave my mind. And so I have to share it with you. Its name could be Chunger. <laughs> and so then we're talking about how it could be named Chunger. And eventually this leaves our DMs and goes into like the official Paizo project server for this book where all of like the actual professionals who professionally work at Paizo are. And we're just like, we have to share the curse of Chunger with you. Chunger. <laughs> and so we're telling everyone about Chunger. And eventually there's like a, a Photoshopped picture of Chunger, which is like a clay oven with little googly eyes. And then uh, that specific elemental gets the name of Chimothy Chunger. And <laughs> Chunger was just such a bright spot in the creation of this book. Amazing. You know, I feel that this Brochma art retains like the the vibe of the name Chimothy Chunger. Like yeah. it's this beautiful, like sort of cylindrical toothed <laughs> creature and it has smoke coming out of the top of it. Uh, it's on page, as Jess said, 127, if y'all want to yeah. look it up in the book. Yeah. Adorable, terrifying, and Chimothy Chunger is a name that suits an adorable, terrifying creature. Absolutely. That's incredible. Yeah. I remembered one thing that I really did want to shout out while I had you here, which is yeah. on page 83 in the Air Elementals, my favorite, which was the Picture in Clouds Elemental. Ooh, yes. Yes. Can you give us a little insight into the design of this creature? Like, how did you go about conceptualizing yeah. such a thing? Yeah, I already had a little bit of an idea of how I would mechanically execute it because I had created a similar creature for the back matter of the Strength of Thousands adventure path, the Spellskine. And so the Spellskine is like a little piece of cloth or paper that absorbs some magical energy during our ritual, but this is just like a byproduct of the ritual. And then it can fold itself up into different shapes. And depending on what shape it folds itself into, it gets different abilities or powers. And so I had already written the spell skine, And so I already had the idea of I could have a creature that has this like change yourself into another form in order to use an ability that is unique to that form mechanic. And in writing more Air Elementals, because I had already written Air Elementals for Bestiary 2. And I'm still very pleased with the Air Elementals that I wrote for Bestiary 2. One of them was like the Melody on the Wind, which is, in my opinion, one of the best things that I've written. Uh, exclusively because Elementals historically get like so little page space. So like just the name of this creature and the names of its abilities and like what its abilities do need to bear a lot of the weight of conveying what its story is. And I feel like Air Elemental Melody on the Wind already tells you everything you need to know. But in, in the same vein as the Melody on the Wind, I wanted another creature that was like, what is something that is iconic to air or iconic to the idea of the skies? that could become an elemental. And so the idea of like cloud gazing and clouds transforming themselves and not having one fixed form and being mutable and changeable, and then the form that they choose to take on, that being like something of mechanical relevance was something that I thought would make a really good elemental. Absolutely. And it, it really does. I loved getting to this one and seeing like all the different forms they could take and what mechanical benefits those give and just the art of this elephant cloud shaped elemental. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. While I have you here, I have a couple like just general questions given some news that's come out recently and i'm curious as to your thoughts on the just announced two new classes the animist yeah. and the exemplar 
They seem really cool and I'm very excited to learn more about them. I learned about them at the same time as the rest of the general public. So the book that they are from is not a book that I'm working on, but they seem so cool. And when Mike Sayer said that the Animist was kind of like the Binder, I loved the Binder from D&D 3rd Edition. That class was so cool. And I'm very excited to see uh, tomorrow how the playtest for the Animist actually looks. I'm likewise very interested in the Exemplar. Mm -hmm. Just this like deity connected class it's very much aligned with some of my interest irl and so i'm i'm really excited to get a look at both of the playtest options and hopefully to get to playtest them i'm crossing my fingers on that one i've also been asking our guests it's recently been announced that perhaps a core deity is not going to make it too much longer is is going to die. I don't know if you have any insider info on this, and I we're not asking folks to share that. We have been asking, who do you think is going to die? And Ooh. if you know, feel welcome to just like throw out a red herring. Right. I do not know. What I do know is that at Gen Con, Luis Loza wrote up explanations for all 20 uh, core deities and how they would die and why they would die and then when someone asked him who was going to die he would give them this like fully fleshed out explanation of like this is who's going to die and why but every time someone asked him they got like a different answer and so he has also been seeding those online as well but he did a spot for gallant goblin where he explained to them how and why kate and kaylian would die mm. and that explanation I think maybe that's the real one. Ooh. Well, now I'm going to have to go listen to that. Okay. Kate and Kalian. Mm-hmm. I feel like somebody else might have said Kate and Kalian, but I don't remember who. Interesting. That's maybe a, perhaps a popular, a popular speculation. So I'm mm-hmm. very curious to see what will happen and when it will be revealed. Yeah. yeah, this is going to be exciting. Uh, I'm I'm really glad that they are doing this for Pathfinder and doing like such a, a big world-changing story event because I feel like the Drift Crisis ended up being really cool for Starfinder. Not only because I was involved in the adventure path that involved the Drift Crisis, but like I just think that having the kind of comic book inspired like line-wide big event, I think that's cool. And it's so really there's cool. going to I assume be adventure paths for Pathfinder that involve this. I assume there will be a season of Pathfinder Society adventures where there will be lots of adventure opportunities in the same way that Starfinder Society had uh, drift crisis related adventures. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, I am really looking forward to seeing everything that spins off from this and like the endless opportunities it's going to create for yeah. new lore and world building and and just fun adventures all around. Well, Jess, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And I always like to ask our guests, where can we find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, so I am on... Uh, most social media websites. Uh, there is the one that recently had its name changed. And then there's also Blue Sky. I'm on both as Tectonomancer, which is a little bit difficult to like say to someone verbally and then spell out. It's kind of obnoxious, but it's uh, T-E-C-T-O-N-O-M-A-N-C-E-R, uh, like tectonic, like tectonic plates, uh, Tectonomancer. It's a great name. I've always thought it was really cool. So yeah, Thank you. I think it's, it's awesome. It's great, except that it's like annoying to spell for people. <laughs> well, go check out Jess's work and mm-hmm. presence on the internet and check out Rage of Elements if you haven't. It's a really amazing, beautiful book full of really cool lore that I just highly recommend. So listeners know that there is much love for Rage of Elements between me and Navarre, and we hope to return to talking about it in the months to come as well. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm everywhere at Dungeon Minister. And if you want to follow No Direction, we are at No Direction on Twitter and YouTube and Mastodon. You can also come join our Discord server, where we talk about episodes of this show and other network shows, and Pathfinder and TTRPGs in general. 
It's a really good time. You are so welcome to join. We'd love to have you there. I also want to give a big thank you to our patrons who make this episode and all of our network shows possible. If you'd like to support No Direction, you can find us under the name No Direction at patreon.com. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you.